Father, pray for me and for us now as we open the word that you'd enable us to hear it, to listen to us, uh, to listen to it, uh, that God, you would speak to us through it. There's so much that can come against us, so much that can, can drive this word from us. So I pray that you, Holy Spirit, that you come against all of that on our behalf. We're certainly not strong enough to overcome our own resistance or that which may distract us. But I pray, God, that you would help us to see it and really believe, to know that Christ is alive. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the book of Acts, please, in chapter 26. I've been preaching our way through the book of Acts, and as God would have it, there's something quite nice here about the resurrection of Jesus that we'll use this morning. Acts chapter 26, I want to read verses 19 through 29. Um, If you've been with us, you'll remember that uh, Paul, the apostle, who has been arrested really because of what he's been saying about the resurrection of Jesus, that Paul, the apostle, um, is, is now on trial before a man whose name is Agrippa. He happens to be a king. And he's, he's there before him, and he's making his defense. And so we find us, ourselves in the middle of that, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, parenthetic, you remember he was the governor who brought Paul to Agrippa. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The basis, the premise, really, that which the whole New Testament is grounded upon, you could even say the whole Bible, but most specifically the New Testament is grounded upon, is that Jesus is alive. There'd be no New Testament if it weren't true. There'd be no church if it weren't true. There'd be no Gospels. That is, no Gospels would have been written if it weren't true. No epistles written to churches if it weren't true, no ending revelation at the end showing the great triumph of God through Jesus if it weren't true. Because if it wasn't true, there'd be no real good news about the life of Jesus. If it weren't true, there would be no churches who would be 
worshipers of Jesus, those who would be founded, grounded upon him and who he was and what he did. No churches that would need instruction, no churches would need the discipling that came through these epistles that were written. There would be no history of the church written by Luke because there would be nothing really to write about these followers of this dead and only dead Jesus. There'd be no triumph at the end through him where we would read of a new heavens and a new earth. It simply wouldn't be because it would be all, all over. But we see that the message, the essential message of the New Testament is that Christ is alive. In fact, as we read through the Gospels, we find a very interesting thing. First, we know very little about the life of Jesus. We have the birth narratives. We have a little bit of him when he was a young boy in the temple. And then we read nothing about him until he's about 30 years old. And then we have about three years of his life, most of which is a description of the last week of his life. When you begin reading the Gospels, you find about a third of them at least uh, is, is, is about this last week as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday uh, and then proceeds through the course of the week, is betrayed on that Thursday, as you remember, after he has that meal with his disciples that we call communion. And then he's tried, goes through all of that, is beaten, goes through all of that, is crucified, dead, buried, and then rises from the dead. All of them have that scenario. All of them have the report of the resurrection. All of them find it necessary to say, but, but remember, he's risen from the dead. That's the triumph of all of this. That's the, that's the linchpin of everything, that he rose from the dead. And then there's this various appearances of Jesus to his disciples, first to the women, of course, which is amazingly recorded. Because in those days, no one, would have believed women. No one would have trusted them with this information. It's amazing that it's in the Bible. It's one of the great proofs that the Bible isn't just sort of uh, something that came down the pike and was made up as some kind of myth. No one in those days would have ever written that it was the women who first got the news. And then, of course, to Peter and to John. And, and, then, and then, of course, to the disciples as they were gathered in fear in that upper room and the men on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Thomas, as he touches the very wounds of Jesus. To James, his brother, who, when Jesus was alive, thought Jesus was nuts. To the disciples, as they were fishing, and Jesus was on the beach preparing their breakfast, as he ate with them, as he talked to them, as he taught them, as he walked through the scriptures with them, all of that Jesus alive together with him. As he meets with them, as even the book of Acts begins, as he, as he meets with them, Jesus does, and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. And then as he's ascended and as the Holy Spirit comes, all this on the very basis of the fact that Jesus is alive, that's key to us. As we've been reading through the book of Acts, we realize that, that this is key in all of, the, of, of what was believed by the first followers of Jesus and all that was taught by the first followers of Jesus and all that was preached by the first followers of Jesus. Some think that it's a myth. Some think that the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus were simply put there because by the time the gospels were written, some would hold that they were written rather late, that is at the end of the first century. Chances are it was before that, but it really doesn't matter too much. But saying that, that at that point that it was simply added on by the church because in order to keep growing, these 
Christians needed something rather fantastic and amazing to believe about Jesus. So they tacked on this bit about the resurrection of him. But we find when we go to the earliest writings, which are the epistles, and even what we read this morning out of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he's passing on what he had received and what everyone believes. In fact, he's passing on what people had witnessed, some people who were still alive. He says, you can verify this. Just ask the people who were alive at the time. In fact, as Paul is making his case, what we read just a moment ago, as he's making his case before King Agrippa, he says to King Agrippa, you know these things, they weren't done in a corner. This isn't something that just, just sort of happened, uh, uh, you know, uh, and no one saw it. Everybody was aware of this. This is something everybody's talking about. This isn't something that, 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 that just a few of us know. We're passing on information and people are scratching their heads saying, wow, look at that. But even as we read through the acts of the apostles as we've been doing so for now, I think about a year together, we realize that at every turn, the resurrection of Jesus is not only mentioned, but it's the clincher in chapter 1. As the disciples of Jesus, the apostles of Jesus, are finding someone to um, replace Judas, who's now by that time dead. One of the criteria, the key criteria, is this one has to be with us, a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We're the ones charged with taking this message. Therefore, this person who's going to join us as an apostle, must be one who can bear witness of the resurrection because that's what it's going to come down to. That's what's got to drive us. That's what we've got to put out there. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter begins to preach and he tells them all about Jesus, the clincher for him is that this Jesus who you killed, God raised from the dead. In chapter 3, as they, as they heal this man born blind, Peter and John, you remember, come upon this man, I'm not born blind, born lame. He was a lame man. And, he, and, and, and Peter and John come upon him and, and he's begging and they say to him, silver and gold we haven't any, but what we have we'll give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he does. And the authorities are all upset about that. And the reason they're upset is because Peter and John did it in the name of Jesus. And there was evidence, as Peter and John would go on to say, that this Jesus is alive. If Jesus were dead, his name would have no power. His name would have no value. But invoking the name of Jesus at that point in time was not invoking someone who was dead and non-existent. It was invoking the name of the one who was ascended and seated and risen on high, this one who's ruling and reigning. And thus invoking the name of Jesus could bring the kind of power that would make someone who couldn't walk, walk. And they got in big trouble for that. In fact, they were told that you mustn't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And the reason is because when they spoke in the name of Jesus, they were speaking of this one who was raised from the dead. And you realize that that gave them power, this resurrection of Jesus. And that gave them courage in order to to keep speaking of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They kept talking about it. And all the summaries of, of, of what the apostles taught included, again, not just included, but showed as a key component, the key component, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. As we move on, we find in Acts in chapter 9, it's Paul who meets this very Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus speaks to him, and it transforms everything about his life. In chapter 10, when Peter goes to the household of Cornelius, a group of Gentiles, 
amazing to Peter that he's even in their house alone speaking to them about the things of God. He speaks to them about the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 13 as the first missionaries are sent out, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, uh, Luke gives us a, kind of an example of what they were preaching. Key to what they were preaching was the resurrection of Jesus. When we come to chapter 17, Luke gives us a, a summary of what Paul talked about when he went into synagogues. And it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures that this Jesus had to die and be raised from the dead. And then later in chapter 17, when Paul's in Athens, in this this place that knew not even of God, he spoke to the philosophers about Jesus and the thing that tickled their ears, the the thing that amazed them, the thing that caused some to believe and others to think Paul was crazy, was that he spoke of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was key in the midst of all of this. And then when Paul finds himself arrested and he's having to make testimony about what he believes, he realizes that he's on trial because he keeps talking to people about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And even as he comes to, to King Agrippa, he says, this is key. He was killed. But yet, God raised him from the dead. It's the key. It's the linchpin. It's, it's, it's the aspect of faith to which we must hold and which must inform everything, everything else. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And again, it isn't something that's simply tacked on in the New Testament. It isn't something that's, that's just tacked on to make Jesus look better, bigger than life, bigger than he really was. It's all throughout. And as we come to the New Testament, we realize the, the, the authentication of the resurrection of Jesus by all that it says, by the very fact that it speaks of an empty tomb and no one has found the body of Jesus ever and the tomb is empty, the the fact that it speaks of the appearances of Jesus, the fact that it calls for others who were alive at the time to verify all that is being said and no one seems to come forward to, to disavow that which was said. And the amazing thing is that at that time, a resurrection from the dead, as the apostles were teaching, was no more inherently believable than it would be today. No one was expecting such a thing. The Greeks weren't expecting such a thing. Because to them, if you spoke of salvation, you would be speaking of one's spirit and soul perhaps becoming alive, but but casting aside this horrible thing called the body. They weren't into bodies. They weren't into resurrected bodies. Their whole deal was getting rid of the body so that the soul could prosper. And even in Judaism, there was a whole group of Jewish leaders called the Sadducees who didn't believe in any resurrection from the dead ever to anyone. They were anti-supernaturalists. And even the Pharisees who believed in a resurrection believed that it would take place only at the end of time. And for them to hear that in in their day, at that moment in time, there was report of one who had been resurrected from the dead, this Jesus, that to them was, was just unbelievable. Because they looked around and said, that can't happen yet. We believe that resurrection can happen, but not now. This, 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 this is completely unthinkable. And yet, when this little band of people who had seen him began to preach and teach about this, this new worldview that resurrection had happened in Jesus, took off. Completely new, completely different. Not 
Nothing that anyone would be expecting. But there it was. Now if you'd ask Paul, why did he believe in the resurrection of Jesus? He would say, because I met him. Because he spoke to me. Because my whole life has been changed on account of it. And it really was. Paul gives record. We know his record of his life before coming to faith in Jesus. Before that moment on the road to Damascus when everything changed. We know what happened. We know that he was a killer, a murderer, persecutor of Christians. And then meeting Jesus, the risen one, everything changed for Paul. Those he thought his enemies now became his friends. Those he thought his friends now became his enemies. And he was willing, quite willing, to be persecuted, even to go to his death for this thing. That gives him a great deal of credibility, as it does with the other apostles, who themselves were persecuted, who themselves went to their death because of what they believed about Jesus. As Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, chemist, physicist, said, I believe those witnesses who have their throats cut. By that he meant, I believe those people are willing to die for what they believe to be true. And these very ones believed just that. Now the question before us is, so what? So what? So what that Jesus is alive. Well, the so what to the followers of Jesus, the earlier followers of Jesus, as we look at their lives, the so what was, first of all, it gave them tremendous courage. It gave them tremendous courage, first and foremost, to stand before the authorities and say, I know you've commanded me not to speak of this resurrected Jesus. I know that you've said, if I speak of this resurrected Jesus, you'll put me in jail or you'll kill me. But I can't stop speaking of that which is true. Not only of that which is true, because there's lots of things we don't speak of even though it's true. You see, it's just not important to talk about. Lots of true stuff out there that we know that we don't engage in conversation about. But this was so true that they had to speak of it because not only did it give, it, give them courage to, to, to speak it even though their lives were threatened, but it gave them the courage to invite others to believe it as well. It gave them courage to stand before people who didn't believe it and tell them, you must Believe this. This is life. Without this, there is no life. Without this, your present life is wasted. Without this, your future life is hell. And they knew exactly what they were doing when they were inviting people to believe this. They were saying, come join our band of outcast, persecuted people. Come be countercultural. Come and stand against the culture. Come and realize that in believing this, your parents may no longer speak to you. Your siblings may think you're nuts. Your friends may turn away. Your employers may cast you out. They weren't offering prosperity. They weren't offering health, at least not in the short run. They were offering life, real life with God. And yet they still continued to do that. And they still continued to do that. With, and they were known not as obnoxious people, not as arrogant people. They were known as loving people. They were known as people of compassion. They were known as people who would go and help and give and all of that. 
And yet still they had this invitation always by way of their lives that gave them courage to do that. Why? Because they knew it was true. Because they had experienced the truth of it. Oh yeah, they heard the reasonable words as Paul was saying to Agrippa. These are reasonable things to think about. Moses spoke of this. The prophet spoke of this. We know the empty tomb. Uh, we, we have the testimonies of people who've seen him. Agrippa, I've seen him. I, I know that this is all true. Hasn't happened in a corner. We know this. But there is something else. Because of that, because Jesus was alive, he had come and changed them. Paul writes in Romans, for instance, in chapter 4, this, verse 24, he writes, well, verse 25, of Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just taking that one phrase out of the whole context, you'll have to trust me. But what Paul is referring to here is simply saying, listen, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions. He he was crucified for our sins. There was something that was keeping us from God. And it was our own neglect. It was our own dishonoring of God. It was our own rebellion against him. And that separated us from God. And so Jesus took that upon himself. He was delivered for our transgressions. But he was raised for our justification. What does that mean? It means that in his resurrection and because of his resurrection, we could then be declared righteous in him. That's what justified means. It means that God has made a declaration of us and he said, you are right with me. You are accepted by me. You are mine. That's what it means to be justified. And he says that because Jesus died and was raised, God can now look at all those who trust in him and say, you are righteous in me. You belong to me. There's no longer anything between us. You're mine. And he could do that, you see, because when Jesus died for the sins of sinners and paid the price, the reason that he was able to be resurrected is because he had no sin in himself. And thus, once he had paid for our sins, he was free to go. And the very fact of the resurrection means that it's done. Means that our sins are paid for. Means that everyone who hooks into Jesus by faith, everybody who comes into Jesus by faith, everybody who's joined together with Jesus by faith, then as he paid for sins, our sins were paid for. As he rose to new life, we rise in him to new life. They knew that. And they lived in the assurance of that. So Paul could write, by the time he gets over into chapter 8, he could write this, verse 33. He says, Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. See, in other words, Paul's saying, listen, who can bring any charges against us? God is the one who says, you're righteous. And so if God has said, you're righteous, you're right with me, who can say you're not? I mean, God said it. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's saying, who can bring any word of accusation against us that will condemn us? And Paul's saying, well, they can bring it, but they bring it to Jesus. And Jesus is the one 
who's alive, who hears the word of accusation and says, that's not true. That's been dealt with. I've paid for that. So Paul says we can live in the assurance that we really do belong to God, that we really are justified. And they, they, they lived in that assurance. And nothing could shake them from that. And they, they went to everybody and said, this is the only way to be right with God. You may hate me after this. <laughs> they may hate me after this. <laughs> but this is really the only way. You can't shut me up. And so I have to keep telling you about this. And I have the courage to tell you about it because I know it's true. I live in it. I live in the very assurance of it. And Jesus really is alive. Not an idiot, King Agrippa. That's the loose translation of Paul's defense. This is rational. How else could you stand in the presence of God? Lest someone like Jesus goes before you. And so he speaks to him. Thus, in, verse, in chapter 10, in verse, middle, uh, verse 8, uh, Paul can write, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the very point of it, because he's alive. Thus he did it. And what he did was pay for the sins of sinners. And his very resurrection is proof of that. Thus all who believe in him can be declared righteous by God. And if God declares you righteous, no one can take, you from, can take that from you. Because it's Jesus who stands and intercedes and says, they are mine. Any accusation that's made against us in heaven is intercepted by Jesus and cleansed. They knew that. And they stood in his very presence. They lived in the very assurance of all of that. Not only that, they would live in the assurance of, of what was to come. I read to you this morning... In one of the readings between all of those songs, uh, a passage from 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is, is, is really that, that passage where Paul defends resurrection of us and resurrection of Jesus. But his point is that we will be raised to newness of life because Christ has been raised. And not only that, but, but we will be raised someday with a new body. And we'll live throughout all eternity with a body that's imperishable. And here's the reason he gives for that. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does this, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And by that he simply means Jesus is going to return at a particular moment in time. Some of us will be alive, that is not asleep, be alive at that point in time. So not everybody's going to die. Those who are alive at the time of Jesus' return will not experience physical death like all the rest of us will who will die before he comes back. Might be this afternoon, so if we're still living by then, we'll be in that number, verse 52. But his point is everybody's going to be changed in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying this, he's saying, because of Jesus, and for those who believe in him, death will actually be swallowed up in victory. Death is the reality. It's a reality among us. It, it happens. Again, to everybody, it will happen to everybody except those alive, the coming of Jesus. Just simply, it happens. We can deny it, we can ignore it, but it touches us all over the course of our lives. And it looks like, at the moment of death, that death wins. It looked that way to the disciples of Jesus. After Jesus was killed on the cross, they didn't go back and say, well, this is no big deal because he's going to rise. They huddled in a little room, afraid. Some guys said, let's go back home. So they took the road to Emmaus and they were on their way home. Peter and the rest of the disciples said, let's go fishing. And that wasn't just to pass the time. They were fishermen. And after Jesus had called them, you remember, and they left their nets, we never read in the Gospels that they go back to their nets. But after Jesus is killed, what do they do? They go back to their nets. Why? They don't know what else to do. That's who they are. They're fishermen now. They forgot the fishers of men lying. So they go. So it looks like, even in the death of Jesus, it looked like death won. When you attend, if you ever have... I suspect most of you will. Before you yourself die, you'll attend a death, someone dying. And it'll look very much like death has won. And you'll know nothing else by simply looking at that person. But Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a sting to death. Not the sting that's like a slap in the face or the sting that you get from the sunburn, but the sting that you get from the bite of a venomous snake, a sting that you get from a scorpion that kills. He says there's sting in death. That's why it looks so bad. That's why it takes your breath. That's why it takes your life. But, but, but Jesus had taken out the sting. Notice how he puts it. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. The law exists and it commands us. And it says, do this or you'll die. God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, or you'll die. This is why I've given you life. I've given you life to live in love. And if you don't live in love, then I'm going to take life from you. That's simply justice. And so he says this. The law stands and condemns us because of our sin, because we disobey it. And therefore we stand condemned to die. Is there anything that can remove that sting? And the answer is yes. Jesus, his death for us, his resurrection to declare us righteous and free of death. Then he goes on this and says, not only is what's to come guaranteed, this great resurrection, this time for all eternity, and there'll be no tears, and there'll be no dying, and be no disease, and be no pain. Verse 58 Paul says, therefore, 
that is. Because all of that, because you're assured, because you're living in the assurance of all of this, here's what I want you to tell you to do. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, be steadfast and immovable. So you get the sense that there's going to be stuff to come against us that's going to try to move us away from that which we know to be true, that which our heart has experienced. He says, don't let it. Continue to go back. Continue to go back. Continue to reflect. Continue to meditate. Continue to rehash all that is true about Jesus all the time. Don't let it escape from your mouth. Don't let the words of this law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night because there's stuff that's going to come and say, this isn't true, Jesus is dead. This isn't true, Jesus isn't alive. This isn't true, Jesus isn't ruling and reigning. This isn't true, you're not justified before him. There's going to be stuff that's going to come and speak that to you. Be steadfast, be immovable, be like the person who's built his house on the rock, not on the sand, so that when the difficulties come, you're not shaken, you're not splattered, you're not destroyed. And then he says, so always abound because of this in the work of the Lord. Now, what is that? Now, we have a tendency to think that the work of the Lord is all the spiritual stuff we could name. If we were in Sunday school and I was at a whiteboard and I said to a bunch of fifth graders, what's the work of the Lord? They'd give me all the spiritual stuff. They would say, loving God, loving Jesus, praying, reading your Bible, telling other people about Jesus, and all that's true. But here's how Paul puts it when he speaks of the work of the Lord as he's making his defense before King Agrippa. Verse 23. He says, this is Acts 26. He says that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, here's the work of the Lord. Here's the work of Jesus anyway. He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, do you remember that after Jesus was raised, he met with his disciples, and then he ascended? So the question is, how is he proclaiming light to them? And what does it mean to proclaim light to them? Well, it means to proclaim light to them, to give them something by which they can see. Give them something by which they can see God. Give them something by which they can see themselves. Give them something by which they can see all of this truth about how it is to be justified and have assurance and and live in the very presence of God. For all eternity, that light, you remember Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so the question is, how does Jesus proclaim light? You remember something else Jesus said, you are the light of the world. How is it that Jesus being alive lights this place? through us. How is it that Jesus being alive lights your home through you? Dad, mom, kids. How is it that Jesus being alive lights your office through you? How is it that Jesus being alive lights the grocery store when you walk in? How is it that Jesus being alive uh, lights the bus or the plane or the car when you enter into it. How is it that that light shines? I'm just going to leave that with you. 
That's my job. It's going to leave that with you. See, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, what we've been concentrating on is our identity as witnesses. And sometimes we say stuff and sometimes we don't. But we're lights, really. People are to see us and in some way, shape, or form catch a glimpse, sometimes clear, sometimes less clear, just depending on our interaction with them. This isn't saying that every time you walk in the grocery store, you have a big banner that says, Jesus is Lord, believe in him, and all that stuff. It may be simply that that light is shone because as you walk through, somebody drops something out of their cart and you pick it up and put it back in for them. You don't even have to talk about Jesus, but there's, there's something there about what you are and who you are. And why do you do that? To glorify God. Why? Because this one Jesus is risen. And that's the whole guts of your life. That's the basis of your life. So your speech is sprinkled with, with sweetness as you live a life that's contented and not complaining. As you speak kindness and gentleness and not harshness. Light. 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 And I'm flying in airplanes at night. And if I can, I don't usually sit in the aisle, I, I mean the window. I like the aisle because, I don't know, I get out faster or something. Actually, I don't, I think it's because just in case the plane sideswipes something, I'm in the middle. Uh, but uh, I like to be in the front because, you know, how many planes you ever see, you know, backed into a mountain. Uh, but, uh, but at night, you look out and you see all these lights and darkness. And I just think that's us. darkness which we once lived in once contributed to, once embraced once loved with every ounce of our being because the risen Lord Jesus invaded our space the risen Lord Jesus cast his light as the apostle writes he said let light shine into darkness so that Bill you may see the glory of God in the face of Christ because he did that Now he says, abound in light, abound in that, be that. How is it? That light shines from you. How is it that light shines from me? Because Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, for us as a company of people, a group of people in this community who live here and send people from here. I pray, God, that we might abound in the work of the Lord that we might be light that people may see Jesus that people may know that he's alive because of our lives thus grant to us the assurance that he died for our trespasses and he rose for our justification give us assurance that he lives to intercede that he lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Our response to the benediction is that Easter benediction. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. I I didn't put in the bulletin for reasons unknown to me. The end of that, which is simply, at least my end to that, which is simply hallelujah. But I think we should say that. That Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now, may the God of peace 
You brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant to equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.